Today we continue our series in the book of Romans with Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Nate. I haven't met you yet. Good to be with you today. Um, just a quick um, revisit to those announcements. I'll, I'll just say this. One of the heartbeats of Redeemer City has been over the years uh, to look towards those areas that have needs and to step in in those capacities. And this morning you heard the announcement about the warm winter clothing drive. Um, we really want to be a community that overwhelmingly loves and serves this community. And so this is actually one of the first opportunities in a long time since COVID and so forth where we can do that. So let me just encourage us as a community to think about the gospel and working out in our context um, to really step in there um, as you are able. Um, that being said, uh, in case you thought the gospel was a privatized, kind of pietistic, internal, um, just, just to be lived out with a small community, Paul, writing to the church at Rome, takes the gospel to what the Greeks called the polis, which is where we get our term, the politics. It's the public square where decisions are made. And Paul is saying this, if you really believe this gospel, if you hold to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of the world, then that addresses how you relate to the civil authorities. And in other words, for a Christian, put it this way, a Christian has a dual citizenship. Paul would write another letter to the church of Philippi, a Roman colony that had actually been designated, gifted, given Roman citizenship. That was a big deal back then. That was everything. And Paul would write this in Philippians 3. He would say, but our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, Paul would say, you're a citizen on the earth of a particular state, but your ultimate allegiance, your rights, your privileges, your obligations are the citizen of a kingdom of God. But you need to work out that dual citizenship in a particular context. And what's kind of remarkable, you think about where Paul and who Paul is writing. You ever heard of Rome, right? Think about when this letter was written, 
Guess who was in power at the time when he's writing these Roman Christians? A guy by the name of Nero. He hadn't quite reached the uh, political craziness that would come later in his reign in which he would light Christians on fire. But nonetheless, he's writing to a group of Christians in a particular place where it's at least unfriendly to their faith. So you might wonder, what is Paul going to say? What is he going to say to those Christians there about how they work out their dual citizenship? And Paul summarizes it two times in this passage with one phrase, to be subject, which means to obey, to submit. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, there's there's one moment where the disciples go out and and they're given power to cast out demons and they come back and, and the disciples say, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. In other words, even the demons believe. Even the demons sub, like, submit to us in your name. It's the same language here. Paul says to the Christians at Rome, working out their dual citizenship, to be subject to the civil authorities. So three things we're going to see this morning. Why a Christian ought to submit. Secondly, when a Christian shouldn't submit. And then thirdly, practically what it looks like to submit. So let me pray and we'll get in. Father, um, we are grateful that you do not leave us in the dark, but you speak to the very places where we are. And we pray this morning that you would apply your word to our hearts and to our lives in this context. Lord, that we would offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice and live out in such a way that our lives are pleasing to you. And we pray for your help and your wisdom now in these moments. Amen. So why should a Christian submit? And I start here because I'm going to say this up front. As we go through here, there are going to be some moments where you're going to say, but what about this? But what about that? And just hold on, we'll get to point two. But for a moment, what does Paul say about why a Christian ought to submit? And in verse 1, he says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. So there was a, there was a time in our lives where a transition happened with Amanda and I, and it was when our, when our oldest turned 11 or 12, and it meant we could go on date nights without actually hiring a, a, a babysitter. And so we would appoint our oldest to be in charge and we would leave. I remember the first one, we, we left like maybe five minutes away because you don't want to leave too far, right? But what would happen is we'd come back and we'd say, hey, how did everything go? And I don't remember how many times, I don't know there's a lot of times, but if there was a time where there was a revolt against that authority put in place, our two youngers would be in trouble, right? Well, why? Because to disobey our oldest would be similar to disobeying us. We had put them there. And Paul is saying something similar here. He's saying this, when a ruler comes to power, whether it's through force or it's through heredity or a democratic election, as in our case, ultimately, Paul is saying they are appointed by God. They're put there by God. One of the most unique places, actually, where you see this 
in the scriptures is in the book of Daniel. This is a time in which Daniel is in exile. The king of Babylon has come and exiled God's people out of their land. And yet the book of Daniel is very clear about what's happening, that this is all under God's work and his plan. In Daniel 4.17, listen to what Daniel says. To the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Daniel's saying the reason why King Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, was not a worshiper of God, of Yahweh, why is he there? It's because God put him there. And so when Paul says that a Christian ought to submit, he's saying this, firstly, because God is the one who has put them there. And that means for a Christian, no matter what political party they are a part of, a Christian is called to submit to those who are in charge. That's why in verse 2, Paul says there, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. But the second reason Paul says to submit is verses 3 and 4. Paul says this, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on that wrongdoer. The second reason Paul says to submit is because it's wise. Some of the undergirding pieces around this section is simply this, that God is a God of order. He's a God of order. As one commentator put it, he has put forward government as a means of mitigating evil in this world. Some of you have read the story, The Lord of the Flies, right? It's that great novel by William Golding. It's this story of young boys who are kind of find themselves alone on a deserted island, and what happens, right? It just resorts to chaos and brutality. And the message of his book is clear, that human beings were made for rules and the government in order to maintain a safe environment. Now, let me say this. This may sound incredibly naive in our day. You might say, Paul, are you off your rocker? Have you looked around? Do you not know what happens? Do you not know what happens in governments and how we ought not to trust them? But friends, Paul is not naive. The scriptures are not naive. Remember, he's writing to Christians when Nero's on the throne. In fact, in this passage, he calls the civil servant, the civil official, a servant of God in this passage. It's actually the same exact word where we get minister or deacon. In other words, there's a way in which those in civil authority, whether they acknowledge God or not, actually serve him. They are serving God in a way that controls evil and wickedness and promotes the good. And therefore, it is wise to submit to those in civil authority. For this is the way God creates order. 
And to be out of step with what is good or what is evil means you will pay the normal consequences. If you're good, reward it. If you're bad, pay a fine or worse. But the third reason Paul gives is that's fair. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says this, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. You know, um, notice the language multiple times is that language of owed. It's dynamic of an obligation that those in authority are actually owed something by their very position. And it's remarkable here because in case you view those in authority as kind of team B or unimportant, Paul here uses a different term. He calls them ministers. And that term was refined or used in the Old Testament for those who served in the temple. In the New Testament, it's used for those ministering for the Lord. It actually shows the sacred nature of this service. What Paul seems to be saying is this, is ruling is not easy. There are competing values, opinions, and problems that those in civil service face. I mean, how about this pandemic, right? The last two years, has it been easy for anybody to govern during this time? No. And therefore, Paul is saying, it's right that you give them respect. It's right that you submit. Paul is, let me tie this back again. Paul is saying the implications of the gospel, if you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if that's what you hold to, and Paul is saying this gets worked out, how you offer yourself pleasing to the Lord is in the particular state you find yourself, you submit to those in authority. And remember, he's writing to a church in the Roman Empire with a pantheon of deities, a government that calls its Caesar Lord and even oftentimes view that as as a deity, as a godlike status. And if there's ever a moment, right, where you might think Paul would say, buck the system, forget about it, Paul reminds them, be subject. That being said, even though the primary emphasis in this passage is to submit, there are at least two moments in this passage where we see actually a Christian ought not to submit. And the first is hinted at in verse 7. Paul says, give everyone what you owe him. And this is actually an echo of Jesus in Matthew 22, 21. Jesus says, give to Caesars what is Caesars, and to the Lord what is the Lord's. In other words, Paul is saying this, excuse me, Jesus is saying in that moment, yes to paying taxes, but no to worship, to, to worshiping Caesar. In other words, Jesus is saying, even though you pay your taxes, your ultimate allegiance Your ultimate allegiance is not the state, but it's God. Remember in the book of Acts, where Peter is brought before the authorities, and they're told to no longer speak 
about Jesus and the resurrection. And Peter, in Acts 5, 29, respectfully says this, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, Peter in that moment was saying, my ultimate allegiance in this dual citizenship is not to this particular state. My ultimate allegiance is my citizenship in the kingdom of God, and respectfully, I must obey him. But the second way we see in this passage where a Christian ought not to submit is when when our passage says the ruler is one who is to be not a tear to good conduct, but to bad. In other words, there is a sense in which every ruler that is in position ought to hold to a moral order that is higher than themselves. In other words, as Keller puts it, to put it this way, if the state commands what God forbids, or if the state forbids what God commands, then civil disobedience is a Christian duty. Remember in the book of Exodus, there was this law that was pulled down by Pharaoh in which they called the midwives who were delivering the Hebrew slaves' boys. They said, kill all the boys, keep the girls, but kill the boys. And the Hebrew, those midwives actually stuck it to the man. They said, we will not do that. They practiced civil disobedience. So we're not going to listen to Pharaoh. We're listening to God. Recently, I've been reading um, a biography of the life of Martin Luther King Jr. And at one point, he was in jail in Birmingham. He'd been arrested for a protest. And he was in isolation for multiple days. But there was smuggled in a newspaper for him to read. And in that newspaper was a letter by eight white clergymen who had written a call for unity. And they were critical of the protest. And one of the reasons was because there was an injunction passed that forbid any protesting, which of course, King, you know, basically said, I'm not going to follow that. And this is Dr. King's response. I would actually submit to you this afternoon, Google it, read it. It's remarkable. But there's a moment where he says this, The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Which means for a Christ follower... With this dual citizenship, we must think rightly and work out in our context what is God's will. And at times, for a Christian, civil disobedience will be the response of the Christian. Or perhaps even in our moment, in a democratic society, it will mean actually working for laws that are just. So don't you see for a moment how unique this is? For a Christian to work out their dual citizenship. On the one hand, 
The Christians ought to be the most model citizen in any state, no matter what that state believes, no matter what that state holds to. And yet, on the other hand, because of their ultimate allegiance to God and their citizenship in the kingdom of God, it will mean at times responding with civil disobedience. That's the mark of a Christian. It's not comfortable. So lastly, practically, how do we submit? Let me submit this to you. We submit with our hands, our words, our heads, and ultimately our hearts. Firstly, our hands. Verse 7 begins this way. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed. So April's coming, right? Right around the corner. Let me submit to you to borrow the words of Romans 12. Do you want to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God? Pay your taxes. (laughs) It's real simple. Pay your taxes. Secondly, submit with our words. In verse 7 it says, respect to whom respect is owed. When Paul says that, what he's saying ultimately is this. Think about how often he uses minister and servant, these different interchangeable words to describe those in civil service. He's saying this, respect the office, even if the one holding the office you don't think deserves any respect. I was recently having a conversation with someone, a Christian who was disgruntled and frustrated by the current administration, and they're offering criticism after criticism, but what I was surprised at, this is the first time I remember hearing this, at the very end they said, I need to pray for him, speaking of Biden. And they were right. That's exactly actually what First Timothy 2 calls us to do, to pray for those who are in positions of authority. Let me put it this way, what if, what, what might happen if every Christian, before they posted their latest social media hot take on some political thing, would pause for a moment and pray, and then think for a moment, this is what I'm posting about God's minister and God's servant. How would that change the climate of our moment, of our day? Respect to whom respect is owed. But then thirdly, submitting with our heads. You know, Romans 13, 5, it says, submitting according to our conscience. And notice here, what Paul is saying is that a Christian submission can't be merely external laws. It's not just merely because it says this to submit, but it actually points to this internal self-knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. It's got to go all the way down there. And that means, that means a lot of things, but let me submit to you a couple things in this present moment. Two concerns I have. And it's basically geared around this, is what is it that is shaping our conscience? Um, one of the moments that I think that has shaped these last number of months, 
that I think for many people, particularly those not in the church, as they think about Christians related to politics, is simply the images of crosses and scriptures on the capital of January 6th. In fact, I'd say for a large part, those who are not Christians are honestly scared of Christians in this political climate. What's really interesting, though, recently a book came out, it's not too long ago, called Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. And these are two authors that are not Christians. And they argue for this point. They say this, as Americans become more religious in terms of attendance, prayer, and scripture reading, they move in the opposite direction from Christian nationalists. Let me say that again. This is, these, these authors are not Christian. They're evaluating Christian nationalism. In other words, what happened on January 6th. And this is their takeaway. As Americans become more religious in terms of attendance, prayer, and scripture reading, they move in the opposite direction from Christian nationalists. Why is that? Because you see in the scriptures to welcome the sojourner, to welcome the immigrant. You see the Imago Dei, the image of God, that all races are created equally. You see a concern for the poor. In other words, what are they saying? They're saying, when you become more shaped by the scriptures, it moves you away from things that are actually pretty dangerous, right? But secondly, I'll put it this way, what are we being shaped by here internally? And and my concern here is, are we more shaped by the political party we hold to? Or are we shaped by the gospel and the scriptures themselves? Do you know what the early church was marked by? I'll give you five things. Firstly, they were multi-ethnic. Secondly, they cared for the poor. Thirdly, they were non-retaliatory. Fourthly, they were against abortion. Fifthly, they were a sexual counterculture. Do you realize the first two, those are very liberal values, multi-ethnic care for the poor. The last two, conservative, against abortion, sexual counterculture. The third, non-retaliatory, that's not marked by any party, right? What are you shaped by? Listen, if statistics are true and younger younger people are leaving the church, why is that? Because they're tired of it being shaped by a political party. They can see right through it. What are we being shaped by? Listen, if we truly live with a dual citizenship, we ought to be an absolutely confusing people to this culture. If our consciences are shaped by the gospel. And lastly, let me submit to us that we 
submit with our heart and our dual citizenship. What do I mean by this? C.S. Lewis years ago wrote this. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Can I submit to you that perhaps the most radical and the most important thing in our day is simply this. We come back to the very beginning of Romans 12. And what does Paul do? After recounting for 11 chapters about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for a lost world, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world by any political party, but by the gospel. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I'll just close with this. It means this. Redeemer City, we are called, we are called to the gospel. That is what we are called to. And we are called radically to one another. And that that is actually, in this world, the best thing for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we need your help and your grace and your wisdom in these days. We want to be shaped and transformed by your gospel and not by the various things that sway this world. We want to be a peculiar people, and yet we admit and we confess we are not. Would you rend our hearts to the good news of your Son? Would you keep us tethered in this world to the hope that is to come? And with hearts that are committed there, would you help shape us to be a peculiar people here? And we ask this for your name and your fame. Amen.